on air today we have a extra special guest he's a guy i know from way back from like more than 20 years ago i'd say we went to the same international school together and we're going to talk a lot about that international schools today so oops 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 <laughs> little tech error there not going to edit that so nick why don't you tell us about yourself uh well th thank you um for that uh introduction of the top of my head there but yeah, this is all going unedited huh i, I like that man we're, we're live we're, we're just doing it live um we're doing it live i don't know how many people it's, will yeah, remember it, that reference <laughs> think of it as a live stream but i'm just not live streaming it we're just going live record i will eventually live stream you can see on the on the screen here there's twitch and trovo which are live platforms so we'll eventually be on there but anyway enough about that let's get into you nick tell us about yourself yeah uh, so um, I was born in Tokyo, Japan, uh, back in 1986. My dad was an American, mom Japanese, so what you call half. And um, I attended the American school in Japan my whole life, uh, from nursery, kindergarten, all the way until graduation. Uh, that's actually how I, I know uh, Nathan went to high school together, as well as middle school. And um, following graduation, I went to the United States for college. But then I returned back to Japan to work as what is, you know, proverbially known as a sarariman, you know, basically a, a, a I guess a white collar worker at a company called PricewaterhouseCoopers, and I was there for about a year, and then I left to pursue a master's in international education, and that was back in 2010, and since then I've uh, worked in Honduras, uh, Bahrain, uh, Japan, and currently I reside in South Korea as a social studies teacher, and I teach economics, psychology, and AP research. Yeah, and you really grew up in this lifestyle. I mean, I feel like I have, because I went to international schools growing up, but you, you were a, one level deeper, and a lot deeper, because your father worked at the, at the international school. So you had a parent who was actually faculty, and now you've gone into this sort of career path. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? like the, your background and how did that kind of got you to where you are today? Yeah, so I was um, quasi-faculty child, and I say that because um, a lot of people actually know me even don't know this, but the first, um, I, so I spent about 15 years at ASIJ when you include the, I didn't you know, stay back in years, when, when you include nursing, kindergarten and stuff, about 15 years. And of that 15, my first eight, actually, my father uh, was a business owner, and we were what we'd call self-payers. So he was actually paying out of his pocket. So in that sense, uh, a lot of money, as you're familiar with, uh, for these international schools. So in that sense, my family sort of has the unique perspective of sort of, you know, he, he, he basically his money, you know, his wallet backs up his statements. You know, a lot of people say they value the international school education system. But, you know, he was willing to put in, you know, almost $200,000 of my, you know, education at, at ASIJ. Uh, prior to him, as you mentioned, he worked at ASIJ for, I think, 18 years. And of those 18 years, I was maybe there about six years. So those six years, um, tuition, I think, was free. 
I think now um, most schools, um, either tuition is free or faculty are asked to pay a nominal fee, like 5%, 10%, which is quite reasonable for you know a world-class education. Yeah, and I would say that I'm very lucky, very blessed that my dad was on one of those old school ex- expat packages. And so mm-hmm. they paid for the school. My dad didn't have to fork out how much per year, like ASIJ, the American school in Japan where we went. Every year was like yeah. a college tuition, right? How much was it when we were going there? It was about, um, you know, obviously colleges are just crazy now. So it's less than college today. Uh, but today, um, I think a lot of the top schools are about, you know, twenty to 30,000. Uh, but when we were there, it was probably about fifteen to twenty. Uh, but that was back when, um, you know, the college I went to uh, it was public. So um, for the kids who um, were California residents, uh, when I was at Berkeley in two thousand eight, you know, two thousand nine, they were paying seven thousand dollars a year, and then kids at ASIJ were paying eighteen thousand dollars a year. <laughs> so you know, it was uh, it was definitely quite. Uh, it's an expensive investment, as you mentioned. Um, for these expats, uh, it's definitely an expensive part of the package. Yeah. And I saw the other side of that because I have a son and he's six years old and we were living in Shanghai a year ago. So a year ago, we would have been in Shanghai and he was going to a international preschool and it was about 7,000 RMB a month, but there was only half a day and mm-hmm. it was very small and it was like a very in, like affordable, you could say. And that's 7,000 RMBs over $1,000. So it's about $1,000 a month. But if I wanted to send my kid to one of the top schools, you know, when he started kindergarten, I mm-hmm. I mean, I guess I could have paid for it, but I would have had money for nothing else. You know, we would have been eating mm-hmm. cans of tuna every night or something like that, you know. Are you aware of the cost in, in a, a place like... I think you bring up a great point. Oh, sorry. I, I think there's a little delay, so I, I cut you off there. Are you aware of the prices in China? Because you've spent a lot of time in Korea, Japan. But as for East Asia, are you aware of some of the other markets, so to speak? I've heard of that. Yeah, the, you know, as you would be aware of, there's sort of, and I'm sure we'll talk about this in a bit more depth later on, there's sort of the heavy hitter schools like Shanghai American School and, you know, uh, Concordia International School, HKIS, although, I mean, it's in Hong Kong, so... Um, you know, the whole China thing, there's a little tricky, but, but yeah, you get the point. And um, yeah, I, I think those places, if I'm not mistaken, they're maybe even more expensive than places like ASIJ. Yeah. And ASIJ it's in Tokyo, but it's not really in Tokyo, Tokyo, right? Like where would you say it is in relation to, you know, downtown Tokyo, however you define downtown yeah, so the, Tokyo is such a big place. It's you know? Yeah, I, I think a good sort of an apt metaphor would be, um, you know, in New York, we look at New York, at least someone like me as an outsider, and I think of New York City, right? I think of Manhattan, I think of, you know, that whole Broadway area. But then you forget there's New York State, and there's this whole area of New York that, you know, most of us tourists never get to. And that's a similar scenario, basically, with Tokyo, where you have Tokyo, the 23 wards, which is like where you lived, and where most of the downtown kids lived, and most of the schools were. But ASIJ is located in what would be considered the non-23 wards, so out west. And um, yeah, as you would remember, and for people who don't know, it's like a good 45 minutes away from the city. And I think that's why that school had a unique advantage of, you know, facilities, uh, which, you know, I, don't, I guess I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. But when we think of international schools, I think that's also a big factor is facilities. 
And, um, you know, as of late, I've, I've gone to Bangkok a lot and I've seen, you know, their best two international schools. Most people would agree are ISB, International School of Bangkok and NIST. And NIST, it's a beautiful school, uh, but they have one soccer field. And um, a lot of these other schools are kind of have more in spacious areas. Uh, for example, the school I go to, or not go to, I work at, uh, we have three soccer fields. So to me, it's very interesting to see how uh, facilities uh, are very different um, simply based on, you know, how much of the real estate is, because you're not going to build three fields in downtown Tokyo. That, that would <laughs> bankrupt any school. For sure. I was going to do a really trite thing and be like, so did you go to Bangkok for business or pleasure? But we'll skip that. And we'll get to where you're working because you're working in an island in Korea, right? Jeju Island. Can you talk about what that's like? Like you mentioned you have all that space for the fields, but what else is that like in, in living in, I guess you could say an isolated space like that? Yeah, it's a unique um, project they have here. It's sort of a semi-autonomous region. And because of its semi-autonomous status, in countries like China and Korea, and I actually wasn't uh, aware of this growing up, um, in Japan, essentially, if you have the English ability, you can get accepted to schools like ASIJ, St. Mary's, etc. But in places like Korea and China, there's actually rules that you have to have lived abroad for three years, or one of your parents have to hold an American passport. And that rule is um, not applied on this island. So in that sense, it attracts uh, a great deal there's a demographic you know throughout korea of people who want to attend international schools but they can't because maybe they don't fit that profile where they don't have dual citizenship or their parents don't have dual citizenship so um to serve that demographic uh, the government started this project called the global education city and uh, it's where i live and it's four international schools just next to each other four giant international schools and yeah they're all just about at capacity. There's one or two that maybe are not quite there, but um, it's a very interesting project. As you said, there's nothing in the area. So um, it's how you really look at that scenario. I think from the parents' perspective, parents look at it as sort of less of a distraction. It kind of reminds me of these Northeastern private schools, right? They're usually in the middle of nowhere, like in Connecticut or like New Hampshire. I think it's a similar sort of ethos. Uh, but obviously uh, when you're young, um, and this this includes young teachers too, but of course the t the older teenagers, uh, you know, they, I imagine, prefer Seoul because there's a lot more things to do there. And um, you know, I definitely empathize with them because we grew up in Tokyo, uh, which gave us really no shortage of activities to do. Yeah, I mean, when you look back at the sort of freedom we had as teenagers and the kind of stuff you could get into that would really worry parents, you know. Like if you're in another country, I mean, we, we were pretty safe in Tokyo, but I mean, I'm a parent now looking back, I look at it much differently. You know, do I want my son to be out drinking in a downtown, you know, metropolis, getting wasted in a bar? You know, I've been drugged in Tokyo. Have you been drugged before? Have you ever had like your drinks? No. Spiked? <laughs> Luckily, That's it happened when happened I was in a... It happened when I was an adult, but I've been drugged before mm -hmm. in Tokyo at one of those shady bars in like Rapongi or in Shinjuku too. Jeez. Um, were they trying to rob you, with, or what was that? Or were they trying to get someone else? Were they trying to rob you, or were they trying to get someone else and you took someone's drink? I don't know, but I, I woke up in a McDonald's 
you know, that McDonald's in Rapungi. One time I woke up in there, and my last memory, I was with a guy we went to school with, who I'm not going to say his name for his own privacy, but my last memory was him being strangled by an African gentleman in an elevator, and I was trying to stop mm-hmm. him. And then next thing I know, it's five hours later, I'm in a McDonald's by myself. It was very odd, but I'm pretty sure I was drugged. Wow, this was in high school. <laughs> no, this was a... This was how many years ago? This was like eight years ago or something. Maybe six years ago. Wow. Yeah. It could have been in college. It's, it's hard to remember. I go back to Tokyo every now and then. How often do you go back to Tokyo? Um, I've been quite fortunate in the sense that the proximity from Jeju to uh, Tokyo is about two hours. So uh, obviously, until Corona hit, um, I was able to go about three times a year. Three times a year. And you still have family there, right? Yeah, my mom and dad are still um, in Tokyo, and then I have two younger brothers in uh, California and um, Kansas, of all places. Okay. And is your, are your parents involved in the international school scene in Tokyo still? Not really, and I say not really because my mother is very loosely involved uh, in the sense that uh, substitute teaching is still a thing there, and um, because they live quite close to SIJ, um, my mother is still a substitute teaches there, I believe. But my, my father, he's just back to doing his own work, his own business. That's cool. So, yeah, I mean, I knew your dad from school, obviously, but I, I had no idea about that other side where he had that, that business going on. That's, that's interesting because uh, I guess you usually don't hear about that. Usually these international school teachers, right, they're often – you can tell the career track a lot better, and I wanted you to get into this on this show. That's like one of the main reasons I want to talk to you is talk about this international school circuit. How do you actually become one? You know, if you're a teacher in the U S like a public school teacher, how do you eventually become an international school teacher? If that's something you want to do? I think, um, yeah, that's, uh, it's quite loaded there. Um, (laughs) the, uh, so I guess first we need to sort of, um, define sort of the parameters of what, you know, makes an international school versus what isn't because as you know we're both aware of there are these certain schools and for people who aren't aware um that are just sort of the quintessential you know quote-unquote international schools right that where you have people from multiple countries a lot of expats um it's usually quite expensive they're certified by some you know organization whether it's uh, the southern association of colleges and school western association school and colleges council of international schools often IB programs. So you have that on one hand. And on the other hand, you do have schools that just simply are, um, usually they use euphemisms like bilingual school, and it will be a school that is essentially, you know, you pay a little bit of extra money, um, but ultimately, you know, a lot of the teachers aren't certified. Um, You have a academic program that isn't maybe quite as rigorous. And obviously that's very hard to measure from the outside, but at least one one sort of, way one can measure a school's academic rigor would be, and I recommend this to anyone, um, especially as you know, your child gets older, at least at the high school level, you just Google high school profile, school name, and then PDF. And then it tells you usually the maltrecreation of like where the kids are going. And obviously it doesn't mean it's a, you know, if one school sends three kids to Harvard and the other doesn't, it doesn't mean the second school is necessarily bad, but you begin to see patterns. You know, if there's a school that is consistently sending students to good schools. And then on the other hand, there's another school, um, you know, that maybe doesn't even have a high school. 
and obviously that's a whole nother set of questions, but I, I've noticed that a lot of these schools that don't have high schools are usually sort of up and coming, right? They're, they're not quite established yet, but yeah, how can one become an international school teacher? Um, I think there is, it's quite, it's a lot more simple than I think people might imagine. There's these job fairs, um, very reminiscent of actually what the Japanese do, uh, where they have these big fairs, you know, where you have 200 companies, very similar, big fairs, obviously not now with Corona, but you basically have 200 schools and it's just like people, you know, let's say a few thousand teachers and they're in various locations. Um, and obviously each, uh, each of these, uh, congregations sort of are somewhat based on level. So there's a UNI fair, the university of Northern Iowa fair, um, where that one is more catered towards younger teachers. So a lot of people I know that was where they got their first job. Um, and sort of the joke is, and I guess this would apply towards, you know, industries you've been involved in as well, but the joke is they usually say you need two years experience and, for someone who's getting started, it's kind of like a big middle finger in your face when you look at 20 schools and all 20 schools are you need two years. But sort of the unspoken reality is if you go to a lesser desired, less competitive school, you might be able to you know, enter without the two years. Yeah. So in a nutshell, I mean, I think that's how most people get in is, are the job fairs. You, you go to, um, you know, there's companies like ISS, Search Associates, uh, UNI has its own. And you go to the fair and it's a crazy world because in those three days, and I've, I've never attended any myself, but I've spoken to, um, actually my wife has, for example, and people have to make these life decisions where they literally will have on the table a choice of like, are you going to go to Mexico city? Are you going to go to Myanmar? Are you going to go to Japan? And you have to make up your mind in like one night. And that's like your life for the next three years, four years. So it's quite stressful from what I hear. Wow. And then the two years experience thing, you're, is that just two years teaching experience period? Or is it like two years international school teaching? It's two years period. Um, so, I mean, one way to possibly do it would get two years in the States. But it seems like most people nowadays uh, who do come international um, are that's their that's their mindset is they would rather do two years at a lesser desirable school and then move on to another international school. But yeah, I think if you did two years in the States, you would still fulfill that minimal requirement. Now, there is this trend in China where a lot of foreigners go over there and they teach English and same for Japan. And at least for China, I can speak to this one. If you want to teach back in America or at an international school, they often don't even take that English teaching experience seriously. Is that the case, would you say? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's better than nothing. But generally speaking, uh, for example, my school, as well as most schools have a, we're just like on a chart, basically, how many years have you taught, you know, seven, 14, whatever. And uh, the ESL teaching, like at a place like, you know, Berlitz, or I guess in Japan, it'd be like GABA, that would count as zero. Um, so yeah, it would not count as uh, years of international teaching. Or just any teaching, like for that matter. Yeah, it would... Um, Again, I, I think it would depend on the administrator and at least personally, I mean, I'd rather have someone, you know, who has five years plus four years teaching English than someone who, assuming all other factors are equal, uh, than someone who has five years without the four years of English teaching. But it is sort of looked upon as a totally different ballgame. And as you're aware, it's, it's also just sort of a different um, professional sort of, I guess the ethos of why someone would get involved is also very different. 
I think a lot of people who teach English, that's usually not, you know, what they majored in college or that's not sort of their end goal. Whereas if you find a chemistry teacher, you know, at most schools, their chemistry teacher, that, that's their plan 10, 20 years down the line. Cool. And can you talk about what you teach? Yeah, I, um, I am basically a master of none. Um, I just, I, I uh, do a bunch of courses. Um, I actually didn't mention one of my courses earlier just to save time. Um, yeah, that's not, that's nice. Ozeki. Oh, I, uh, I miss, I miss, um, sake. although you can get good sake here. I guess I just don't, I don't take advantage of that. We're close. We're close to Korea. In Korea. To yeah. I imagine you get plenty of good Japanese things, right? It's not bad. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> it's better probably than, uh, finding stuff over there. <laughs> Yeah, well, I go but, to the um, I go to the H Mart in Austin, Texas. And apparently, that's a nationwide nationwide Asian supermarket or Korean supermarket, but they got Japanese stuff, Chinese stuff. They got the goods. Oh, I didn't know Austin would. I guess Austin's a sort of the liberal bubble, right, of Texas, or so I hear. Well, I mean, yeah, there's that, but it's it's more so the industry that's here. It's it's like a booming tech industry here. So it's it's a lot of people from California from the tech the tech scene are coming over here now creating startups or working at big companies like Facebook or Amazon or Tesla's coming down here too. So there's a lot of these like major Silicon Valley players that are in Austin now, but there's also a ton of startups hmm. and that includes a lot of Asian people, I would say. Hmm. Not going to so say why. Is growing we'll, just, we'll just leave it at that. Hmm. Well, yeah, it, I guess it sort of reflects the demographic of Silicon Valley, huh? Yeah, yeah, you could say that. Oh yeah, you can get you can get real Chinese food in Austin. I was surprised by that. There's like legit, you know, it's not the General Tso's chicken, which I love. It's not that though. Mm. It's like proper Chinese food. Yeah, it's uh, that's a whole other conversation to have, right? About Panda Express and whatnot. But I guess we don't have to get into that now. <laughs> no, yeah, we can we can get back to your <laughs> curriculum. I guess so you said you're jack of all <laughs> trades, but I mean I. I think you have a lot of knowledge about a lot of things. You've been teaching for a while too. So can you talk about what you do with your students typically? Like what is your, what does your day look like when you're in the classroom? Yeah. So um, I guess if I was just break down the, it's a two day cycle where one to eight period uh, school. So one to four on A days, five to eight on uh, B days. Um, I guess I'll just spend a minute running it through so I, I don't bore the audience, but you know, sort of one minute version of, of the two days would be, you know, 8 a.m. to 8.30, we have um, a grade 10 meeting. I'm part of the grade 10. And then, you know, 8.50 to 10.15, it's about 80 minutes, I have my first class, economics. And then I get about two hours off, including lunch. And then from 12.40, uh, I'll have my second class debate. And that goes to about two. And then uh, I get another hour off. Um, and these hours off, it depends on the teacher. You know, sometimes you have stuff to do. And sometimes you have less stuff to do. And then... Um, from 3.30 to 4, business club meets. And then um, if, I, if I do have sports, which we don't right now, uh, but most, most of the time I'd have a sports team from like 4.15 to 6, and I'm usually done at 6. So that's the first day. And the second day is very similar, except um, instead of having two breaks, I'd have one break. And I think, you know, my schedule follows the prototypical, you know, teacher where you get, you know, about two, three hours off a day. You start the day at about 8. Although I guess I, I work maybe a bit later. I think most people get off at about 4.30. And then some people get off at 6. So, you know, uh, when it comes to work-life balance, uh, it's definitely very present uh, in this occupation. 
no, no one's working till seven, eight or, you know, 2 a.m. like those poor guys at Tesla. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So when you got that two hour lunch break, are you uh, a big lunchtime nap guy? Well, lunch, it's like, I, it depends on, you know, what my, my lunch schedule really varies. Sometimes I will leave to go eat lunch. So in that case, I just pretty much leave and come back and that's it. Like, you know what I mean? It's, there's just no time for anything. And, um, when I do eat in my classroom, um, I wouldn't say I nap, but I mean, there's definitely a bit more that leaves me with a bit more time to, you know, work on my own uh, projects or, you know, grade stuff. Uh, you know, it, it's, uh, it's lunch. So, I mean, if it's an hour lunch and I spend 10 minutes eating, I do take a liberty and, uh, you know, try to spend, try to do my own thing. Cause sometimes I, I get in a bad habit of just, just working the whole time and then I kind of burn out. So, yeah, <laughs> that'd be my short answer. Now, one thing about at least the schools that we went to growing up, it was very nice, friendly place, I would say. Like there wasn't a lot of bullying. There wasn't a lot of crime. There may be a little bit here and there, but it wasn't, wasn't such a big deal. But I know a bunch of people who teach at international schools in Shanghai, and they're not really that international. Most of the students are Chinese, and they're like rich kids. And a lot of the time, they're bad kids. They're rich kids that get into a lot of bad behavior. I mean, I heard some weird stories, like young girls, like 14-year-old girls with like an inner thigh tattoo, like inappropriate stuff like this that, that's on display at school. And, and how did she even get that? Who's she involved with? Who's giving her tattoos mm -hmm. at such a young age? So a lot of like, you could say bad kids or, or kids with troubled pasts or something. Would you say there's something like that in Korea? Is, is there any similarity there? Um, I cannot say uh, what the, you know, demographics or sort of the inside situation are for sort of the, you know, lesser desirable schools. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I, I'm honestly not sure because I know Seoul has the most schools to no, no surprise. Um, you know, again, depending on who you're asking, some will say there's eight schools there. Others will say there's 16 um, so I imagine maybe when you get to that sort of, you know, lower rung of, you know, the 16th school, the 18th school, um, perhaps you do start to sort of attract a demographic uh, where perhaps people have chosen or the parents have chosen for them that route because, you know, public school, they're, they're probably kicked out of public school and, you know, there's nowhere else to go. But yeah, I, I don't think it's something unique to Shanghai. I think, you know, uh, it's sort of the the folly of the privatized system, right? Where, you know, you have schools like the one we went to, um, I would say the school I work at now too is like that too, where there's just, you know, I wouldn't say there's no bullying, but again, kind of just when you compare it to the stories you hear uh, from teachers in the United States, it's just like, um, you know, I, I think just the, the law is a bit more draconian and that helps, you know, I, I can recall maybe four or five years ago, there was a kid bullying another kid. And um, the consequence was he was actually expelled. Uh, it wasn't like, you know, he's got five days attention, three days suspension. So I, I know what, these schools take discipline quite seriously. What kind of bullying are we talking about? It was, you know, uh, I, I can't get into the details due to, you know, um, privacy reasons. But um, it was something that I would say with a fair bit of confidence that if it was going on at a, you know, any given 
private or public institution like high school in the United States, it would at worst merit a week or two, you know, suspension, not an expulsion. So um, definitely discipline is taken quite seriously. And um, I think as a result, though, on the positive end, it harbors, as you're saying, you know, a very sort of positive atmosphere. Uh, I think sort of toxic, you know, individuals are sort of weeded out. And, um, you know, that's a whole other conversation to have, too, in regards to, you know, rehabilitation and restorative justice, which I'm not necessarily against. But at the same time, I, I think if the average student is a victim, I think we do have to prioritize, you know, if you have certain students who are just creating a very negative environment for learning, um, you know, it's a private school. So it's a, at the end of the day, the school has a choice to, you know, keep students. So you're saying if a student just, you know, every day strangling people in the hallways, they're not going to last very long. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Start strangling people. Um, Sounds reasonable. Yeah, it'll probably be gone. Yeah. Sounds very reasonable. All right. Did you ever get bullied growing up? Um, I don't know if it would constitute as bullying. I think, I think it would be unfair to people who are actually bullied. I just remember there was, um, yeah, we probably would have been in high school at the same time. I remember there was a senior who would always throw a tennis ball at my head and it would sometimes hit me, but that was about it. You going to name him? <laughs> you going to name, drop, drop his um, name right no, here? No, I'll, uh, you know, I, I just, you know, it's public. So I'll, uh, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll tell you privately. Um, okay. But yeah, there, there was, we could, we could and, pull and, up know, the Facebook I, page I think, right uh, here. Wait. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. So we, we do have your YouTube page pulled up here and let's talk about that. Cause that's, I mean, you were actually a very big inspiration for me creating my show. I mean, I feel like I kind of copied you in a way, but to be very honest, I, I thought about doing something like this for a very long time. And the fact that you did it first kind of was like, Oh, okay, this guy's doing it. It's, it was almost like, uh, you open the door a little bit more for my, I don't know, my feelings to accept doing it. And now I'm really into doing it. And I feel like this is just a way to have a social life. You know, I don't, I'm not seeing people in public that much, you know, so it's really nice to just be able to connect with people I know from way back like you, but also meet new people like some of the other guests I've had on the show. And I have no idea where I'm going with this. Yeah, I, I forgot where I was going. with. Oh, your podcast. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. So, yeah. Why don't you talk about that? Like what made you want to start this podcast, the Tokyo Alumni Podcast? And how is it going? Um, so, um, first of all, thank you, um, you know, for uh, those very friendly words. Um, it's great that I was able to inspire anyone. And hopefully, I mean, if I can do it, I really think anyone, anyone can. And, you know, just sort of piggybacking on what you were saying, I was actually really sort of um, my, um, I'm not looking at Instagram or something right now. I'm looking at for the, the podcast. Um, I was listening to one uh, recently called, um, um, Oh, very bad wizards. And um, one point they made that was really sort of, it, it has stuck with me for the past few weeks is they said, essentially podcasting like, and these guys are you know pretty big. Um, it, it, you have to be able to do stuff um, whether people watch it or not. Right. And, and that's my similar mentality as you, you know, with, you know, it's, it's a social, it helps me connect. Um, I'm very much influenced from Joe Rogan in the sense that, um, I just want to learn. So actually, that, I guess that already goes into sort of what you were at, you were asking, why do it? Um, that was one of the reasons I thought there was a lot of things to learn from other people. And um, you know how these parties go, like, I'm not sure if you've ever been to like a alumni 
you know, gathering. Um, well, I, I did get on an alumni Zoom thing last month. Not quite the same, though. But I mean, I've done, I'd say the only alumni things I've done were the reunions, the class reunion, Vegas, baby, that kind of stuff. Oh, you guys did Vegas. Yeah, we, we did Vegas, too. But it happened to be uh, Manny Pacquiao versus uh, uh, was it Floyd Mayweather. So um, it was like a grand a, a room. And this was still like when I was in my mid 20s, early 20s, I didn't go. But um, yeah, I mean, the main sort of underlining reason of why I started it was uh, so going back to sort of the reunions and, um, you know, we get these little um, what do you call them, like the newsletters and they're great. Um, I think actually, in fact, our alma mater has someone full time uh, and I, I've interacted with her a few times, a very pleasant lady. Um, but I always felt like it was lacking. Like they would just sort of tell me like a paragraph, hey, so and so from class of 78, you know, just wrote a book. <laughs> it was like cool you know but it wasn't um it just wasn't enough depth and when you talk to these people and you say do you mind coming on for an hour almost all of them say yes so and actually not only that but i would go as far as to say a lot of these people including myself um i've i've spoken to other people who you know people re recommended to me back when i was in business and they would just talk to me. Uh, I remember there was a grad from the 80s. Uh, he's a CEO for some companies. Um, I, I won't say his name, but um, back when I was doing the tutoring thing, um, this is prior to my teaching. Um, yeah, he just met up with me at a cafe for like an hour. And to this day, I kind of wish I had it recorded right on this digital sphere because I felt guilty that he was giving me all this knowledge, a very successful businessman. Um, and and it, it was just to me. So yeah, I feel like um, I think Michael Thornton, who is a guest uh, not too long ago, sort of summarized it well, where I'm trying to find a platform to archive basically all our experiences, because at the moment there, there really is no archive. There's just sort of word of mouth. You know, what's Nathan Baker up to? Uh, I think he's in, you know, so he's somewhere in the States and or maybe he's in China. You know, maybe maybe he's in, you know, Japan. I don't know. Right? There's a lot of word of mouth, though. I think someone started a business, you know, where or we get the one paragraph, you know, where you say so and so wrote a book and that's it. So, um, yeah, I was just trying to find a place where I could sort of get all our experiences and not just the people who, you know, are sort of what we would call. Um, I can't think of any other word, even when it's successful, sort of like people have made it in certain industries. But I was like, I kind of want to hear about well, what about the person who, you know, had three kids? I mean, like they, they have something to share, you know, what about the person? Are you that saying that if they have three kids, they can't be really <laughs> successful? No, I'm just playing. So what if they're a lawyer and they have three kids, Nikki? No, no. it's I, I know what you mean. I yeah. know exactly what you mean. But yeah, yeah. somebody's. Maybe like a, you know, jet flying, limousine riding. They have their own business. Maybe they come from a rich family too. Uh, who knows? Uh, but then there's somebody who's maybe doing something a bit more humble. And you want to talk to all of them. Exactly. Yeah. And I feel like that was maybe the, what I would, I would call the um, blind spot of basically a lot of these uh, alumni newsletters. And, and, and you know, to, to be fair to them, though. I mean, the main ethos of a lot of that is, you know, as we know, is money, right? It's, it's like the colleges, you know, I still get emails every, every month from both my high school and the several colleges I attended 
asking for money. So it, it sort of makes sense that they want to hone in on people who might be able to donate money to the school. Yeah, I feel like the tuition costs so much. I, I don't feel like I need to donate anything now while I'm, I'm in my 30s, but I got to buy a house. I got other priorities. I don't feel like I can donate money to a school that charges how much money a year to students? A lot. Um, but eventually, yeah, maybe I'll donate. You know, if I can maybe do something that involves the theater or some kind of, or the AV club or, or something where it's making an impact on a department of the school. I know like a lot of alumni do that sort of stuff. I think that's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Like you're making a mark on the school, you're making it better. And um, it's not just throwing money at it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great point to sort of have a more of a tangible impact on a specific organization. Because you're right, when it just goes to the school, I mean, you, you don't know what it's going to even be used for. So um, I'm actually surprised at how some schools, including colleges, you know, try to sort of, uh, I don't even know if it's called leveraging their position because they're not really in any position to leverage, uh, but they ask for money every, every month. <laughs> to this day, since I graduated Berkeley, they've asked. And uh, yeah, I've, uh, I've never donated to my college. because I feel like my donation was my um, out-of-state tuition, which is about triple the in-state students. So. Yeah, and you got it. You got it repped on your LinkedIn. They're getting a little exposure on on the LinkedIn page there. They should pay you for that. But anyway, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> so you like to talk to alumni, and it's not even just people that we went to school with at uh, the American School in Japan. You talk to alumni from other schools in Tokyo, or do you just do Japan? I know it's called Tokyo Alumni Podcast, but do you actually cover the whole Japan scene when it comes to the alumni? You know, to be honest, there's not that many outside of Tokyo. There's Hokkaido International School. The biggest probably in the West is the Canadian Academy. Uh, but, you know, once you include uh, Osaka Sendi, Canadian Academy, um, outside of Tokyo, um, I do kind of cheat, though. I do include the Kanto Plains. So it, it is Tokyo alumni podcast and name. But I always forget technically YS, uh, St. Moore. Um, I, I had a guy on from Yokota. Um, uh, Kinnick, I mean. Uh, so, um, yeah, those hey, are hey, technically not Tokyo. Explain that for a second, because there's all these schools, you know, Kanto Plain schools. There's a Canadian school out there. Then there's the American school in Japan and Tokyo. There's some Catholic schools in Tokyo. But then there's a school like Yakota. What's Yakota? Yeah, so there is a totally separate system called the DODS, the DODS, the Department of Defense Schools. And um, those schools are um, completely separate in the sense that kind of like how embassies um, are effectively not owned by the local country, right? The moment you join, you're part of the embassy, it's owned by that country. In a similar sense, these schools are often on bases. So they really are sort of truly American in the sense that they're actually on American soil. Uh, and uh, of course, with the history that Japan has uh, with the United States, uh, there's many, many military bases. Um, in Okinawa, there's Kubasaki, um, uh, Kadena, um, and, um, up North, we have like out Aomori and near where we were in Tokyo, the major ones were, uh, Kinnick, Yokota, uh, what am I missing? Zama. Yeah. So all these schools are, uh, Dodds. They're all kids who are, uh, kids of, uh, I guess what would be known as army brats, right? So their parents are some type of, you know, uh, connect they're some type of military personnel and usually they're not just your average foot soldiers they're usually like 
in some sort of upper echelon because the, they're, you know, they, they're getting these whole packages where their kids are able to attend these schools. And these schools are totally different. Um, you know, they're much more Americanized. I think it really depends on the school. I just know, at least from the teacher side, my understanding is that once you get in the system, um, you basically can pretty much, you, you can relocate from country to country. And uh, some of the Dodd schools just pay very well, um, especially if you're an American citizen. And it, it's very, has that American, you know, quote unquote feeling. I know nowadays it's a little different with, you know, you mentioned the Korean supermarket. Um, you know, it's just much easier to find international food, right? Vi- and vice versa. You can find, uh, you know, American food in Japan. Uh, but, you know, 20, 30 years ago when, you know, pre-internet, or I guess there was internet, but, you know, when the internet was less, you know, rampant. And during that era, my understanding was it was much easier to be a Dodds teacher because, you know, you just had all these American things around you and you, you were getting paid pretty, uh, pretty well for a teacher. Yeah, they had some big kids at those schools because I played football at ASIJ, American School in Japan. And we played against those army schools or those military schools. The Navy, like you mentioned, uh, Kinnick, that's the Navy base, right? Or is Yokosuka? I think so. I confused Yokosuka. Kinnick's the Air Force? I think it's, uh, there was Yokosuka, Kinnick, and then I think Yokota. Oh, right. right. Uh, yeah, okay. one, one is Navy, one is Air Force. And they had those big and boys at Zama. Real big boys. And the, for shame, Zama, we yeah. kicked their ass in football all the time. We always kick Zama's ass. We always kick their ass. Now, Yakota, the Air Force base, they beat us a lot. So we'll be fair. But these are supposed to be military kids. They're going to get beat by a bunch of little preppy expat brats in, in downtown Tokyo who go to gas panic on the weekend they're gonna get their ass kicked by those kids that was the reality that's how it was yeah i mean you bring up a great point of american football which um it it continues to be a a real sales point is my understanding uh for schools like asij because i've been around the world now and um i don't know how many schools have american football programs and i guess uh you are fortunately or unfortunately guess depending on how you perceive it part of that system and i wasn't i was actually a runner we were just running <laughs> in the mountains um so fortunately i i didn't have to encounter any of those um those monstrously strong <laughs> and fast i gotta uh, say athletes from Yokota. a lot of them were big and soft we were able <laughs> to handle them. at least those army kids those army kids were real big yeah. I think it's because they had Taco Bell in that base, you know. These these kids were spoiled with fast food, and it, it ended up being, you know, it ended up, you know, to their detriment. They couldn't compete it, with a bunch of preppy expat brats like you and me. Well, you weren't on the football team, but you could have been. There were a lot of there were a lot of not so big guys. I was not very big. I was a line man. I'm bigger now, but you know, it's it may not be muscle mass. That's that's uh, what's grown, you know. It's definitely ASIJ's unique color, though. And I, that's something I'm still very sort of, you know, it does put a smile on my face when I see those pictures of American football. It's like, and it does sort of blow people's minds. They they see pictures of, you know, high school kids playing American football and they're like, what? <laughs> you know, this is in Tokyo. And um, yeah, yeah, I don't think you have fond memories. Man. I don't think you get that in Shanghai. I don't think they had football teams. They might have had some really, really preppy stuff like polo or something at that Concordia. I don't know. I, I never worked there. I never sent my well, kid there. I can't say that. But Well, 
I'm sort of going to extrapolate on that point, though. I think a point that I neglected to mention is there are British schools, there are Australian schools, right? There are uh, Canadian schools, and then there's American schools. And um, that, too, is a very interesting sort of differentiation of the schools, because you do have schools that are also just sort of, quote unquote, international, where you literally have, you know, the same number of British people and Americans, and then you have reasonable size of Aussies. But then you do have a lot of schools. Um, and this is just my, it's my bias, but it's based upon a lot of facts. So I'm pretty confident this information is accurate. I feel like you, if you're British, you could work in a lot of the American systems. Actually, ASIJ would be a good example. There were a lot of English teachers. And, um, but vice versa, if you find like a truly English school, uh, like St. Christopher's is a big one in Bahrain. It was near where I worked the qualification was you needed an English teaching certificate. So as sort of a, you know, as a Yankee, I was always a little bit bitter about that. That I felt, I felt like as the English can sort of, you know, navigate in the American system, international school system and the British system. Uh, whereas if you're an American, um, you were, uh, I think there were paths into the British schools, but it was definitely much more narrow. And you know what this reminds me of is the AP system versus the IB system. So I'll just tell a little story. So at ASIJ, we had the AP system, which is the uh, advanced placement. It's American, yeah. And then there's the IB mm. system, international baccalaureate. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. Yeah, and then a lot of these, I guess it's international schools that use IB, but it's a lot of the more British-oriented, British culture, I would say, British culture-style schools. So I went to South Africa. This is like into my halfway through junior year going to South Africa and I had no chance to join the IB program because I didn't start at the beginning of junior year. IB is a two-year program whereas if I was at ASIJ I just take AP stats as a senior like a guy who's bad at math you know I could just join whenever you know one year another year didn't matter. IB was so restrictive. Can you talk a little bit about these two programs? What are the differences? What's better? What's worse in your opinion? Yeah, so um, those are the, the two major ones. Um, of course, the British schools do often offer uh, A-levels. and I think it's NGSEs. I can't remember the exact acronym. Um, but yeah, the IB has sort of become the primary modality of teaching in most schools. I mean, just looking at Tokyo, I would say probably 70% of the schools are IB. And the IB is a relatively new um, you know, curriculum and the ideas, and again, I'm not an IB teacher, so I'm just sort of talking based on what my friends have told me. Um, the idea is sort of an emphasis on skill over content. So for example, if you're taking a history class in the IB system, the emphasis is, you know, can you um, dissect primary sources? Can you write an essay? Um, can you use evidence in a proper manner to you know, back up your points? Whereas in the AP, the emphasis might be a little bit heavier on the content. So if you're taking a push, for example, I mean, you should know that, you know, Jefferson was the second president and you should know um, that, uh, you know, name three reasons why the United States joined World War II or something like that. So and, and obviously there's still a big overlap. The IB, if you've ever seen the IB econ curriculum, for example, um, the content is heavy <laughs> and of course, vice versa. I mean. The they they teach you about the, the lizard people, right? They really get into that, huh? 
I, I don't recall uh, any lizard people, but <laughs> I'm just playing. But, but it, it is yeah, definitely on. more philosophical if, if that's the jab that you're trying to make towards IB. <laughs> no, I was just doing a little uh, silly conspiracy theory name drop. That's all, you know, something that, of course, they wouldn't teach. But but yeah, go on. Sorry, I interrupted. I mean, I think that just about summarizes, I think, you know, there's the difference, um, but I guess sort of connecting it to employment, which I think is an issue that you also wanted to talk about. Um, it's goes back to the whole joke of, do you have two years? You know, oh, you don't have two years. Okay. Can't work because the, you know, sort of the global modality of education is shifting to IB for, you know, if you're hunting for jobs and you don't have IB experience, that is going to definitely count against you. And, um, I definitely, you know, I've been at my current school for seven years and we have a good, you know, 15% or so leave every year. So I've seen sort of the different paths people have taken and yeah, if a teacher at my school's not IB, by the way, if a teacher didn't have IB prior to coming to my school, it's definitely very hard to sort of break into that IB school system, uh, without the experience. So, I mean, in that sense, sort of expand upon that more is it's definitely a club, um, and I don't know how many other industries work in that way. My understanding is a lot do, right? Guys from Facebook go to Twitter and guys from Twitter go to, not Parler, that's gone now, um, <laughs> go to- uh, Hey man, they're, uh, they're going to get, okay, American Big Tech has pushed Parler to depend on the Russians for freedom. <laughs> well, anyways, I don't want to get into my politics. That's not what this show is about. <laughs> But you brought up Parler. Yeah, I feel Anyways. like I just very inadvertently went into a minefield there. But but you know oh, what yeah. I mean. The Twitter, Facebook, it's the same thing with the banks. You know, you work at Morgan Stanley and then you work at Goldman Sachs. It's like there's only about three, four other, you know, banks you're going to work at. You're not going to suddenly uh, go to, you know, the Bank of Chiba, you know, like out of nowhere. It's, it's in a similar sense, I think, with schools, you have the top, top schools once you're in you're sort of rotating within that. And then similarly, if you can get into, you know, the medium schools, it's a similar thing. A lot of people sort of rotate. And of course, there's a little bit of, you know, vertical mobility between the schools as well. So, I mean, I would say to anyone who is interested in the international school system, I think the most difficult part is the first two years. I think once you get your first two years in, once you do your hard work, um, we have a mutual friend. I, I'm not going to bring his name up, but he, for example, had to go to South America. I know it was a country that he didn't really highly desire. He didn't speak any Spanish, which is very difficult. Anyone will tell you to live in South America. But he did his two years, man. He did his two years, and then he got a job that he liked a little bit more in Asia. And now once he finishes that two years, he's now going to go to a job that he's a bit more, you know, uh, where... I, I, I would say um, I hate the tier one, tier two, tier three, because it's very subjective. Um, but, you know, it's it's not a tier three school. He's going to a tier one, two school. So I'm very happy okay. about that. And I know who you're talking about. And he was on your show. So <laughs> he didn't was, he talk yes, about correct. this on the show? You should plug your show right now. You should plug that episode. What's his name? I don't know if I want to plug that episode. <laughs> oh, well, there was a tech like... <laughs> issue. There was a tech issue in that episode, right? Like he had to change locations. It was a tech issue, um, <laughs> and I'm sure you feel similar. I feel like every time I see a previous episode, or especially now, you know, I'm 58 episodes in, and I see anything from the first 20, I'm just like, "Why is your background like that?" Or you know, "Why is your you know sound off?" And um, you know, there's obviously oh, things yeah. I'm still working on, and I, as a, as you do too, I imagine. So um, 
yeah, if anything's like more than <laughs> 30 episodes ago, I, I feel uh, very self-conscious about um, sort of my oh, yeah. lack in uh, communication skills. Well, I have this very loud gaming PC laptop that blows its fan and you can hear it right now. It's just humming. I go on mute when you're talking just so people don't have to listen to it. So yeah, I got my own tech issues. Dude, I was doing, I was going to do it for my car tonight, but the, I had a tech issue with that. We, I, I don't need to get into that on the air. It's, it's a little uh, boring. Um, now to switch topics. One of the things I love about being an expat is all the weird people I meet overseas. <laughs> There's so many strange people that go overseas. Maybe I'm one of them. Maybe. And uh, how about you? What's, what's the weirdest encounter you've had with an unusual expat? A character, if you will. Um, yeah, so, you know, I, I think a lot of people can uh, empathize that, you know, who are abroad, you do meet a variety of uh, types of people. And I thought about this question because because you, you mentioned this in the pre-interview. Um, and I, I came up with one, Brian Derryberry IV. And uh, Brian Derryberry IV was this um, backpacker that um, he came and I, this was back when I was in Honduras. So in Honduras, because it was kind of a more junior school, um, even though it was, you know, one of the better schools in Honduras, uh, the housing, for example, um, you know, where I live now, you obviously get your own place, but at the newer schools, um, you get roommates like college style. So like I had a little house, uh, with this, with this guy, Brian Albrook, a great guy. He was one of my best men at, um, our groomsmen at my wedding. And um, he liked to uh, have couch surfers at our house. And I did not mind that. You know, it was, it was interesting meeting people. And this guy was traveling through. It was him and his, uh, wife, or him and his girlfriend and a dog, a very cute dog. They stayed for about a week. And then um, this is Honduras, by the way, at the height of its uh, crime rate, where uh, it surpassed um, Somalia. So I think it surpassed Mogadishu during my time there. So it's a very dangerous place. And he comes back maybe like a month later, we come back from work and he's just sitting in front of our house this way. And back then we had like a padlock It's a very sort of ghetto like way we had things. And he, his wife's not, or his girlfriend's not there. His dog's not there. And he's crying. And he's like, I was robbed. Like they took everything. And I, and I don't even know where my uh, girlfriend or my dog is. Like, Crap. Okay. Come in. And we, you know, he, he sticks around for about four or five days, you know, um, we talked to him a bit, you know, we, we, we give him a little bit of money too, give him some food. And then, um, I think about the fourth or fifth day I come back from work and he's not there. And I used to keep in the top drawer of my desk, a few hundred bucks, like American dollars. I look in there, money's gone. So then I, and instead there's a little letter there. And it's like this real long letter that says like, you know, you guys have been so nice to me. You're really good friends, but I need to go sort of find myself and um, I need some money. <laughs> I promise I'll pay you back. And um, spoiler alert, um, I've never got that money back. And I have emailed him a few times, um, but uh, no, no um, response. So uh, to this day, I do not know what happened to Brian Derryberry the fourth. Um, I still have his email. Did you send him a very strongly worded email? You know, um, I actually went down memory lane um, this morning. I have not looked at, uh, you know, when the last time I messaged him. And it actually wasn't. It was very much like uh, I messaged him once a few months later saying, hey, you know, I hope you're alive. You know, um, 
uh, in your letter, you said you took like $70, but I'm pretty sure you took 200. <laughs> I'd appreciate it if, if you could pay me back sometime, you know, now or in a few years. And then I messaged him again a few years later, just saying like, are you still alive? And then that was it. That was about probably about five years ago or six years ago, the last time I messaged him. The thing that gets me about this story is that he's a fourth. Anybody with a fourth, I think two things, and this actually kind of works out. One, that they're very rich and he's the fourth, you know, he's the fourth of generation. He's got that old money. The other is, I don't want to say the G word, but he might be like a traveling trickster type, um, you know, like that show, The Riches. You ever see that show, The Riches? With, uh, no, with that, that one dude who who's like a transvestite and the comedian, the British guy who, Eddie Izzard. Eddie Izzard. Well, it's a good, it's a pretty good show, but it's about traveler, it's traveling familiar, con artists. Yeah. Uh, mm. did, so what, why, he was a fourth? Was he royalty? What was he? <laughs> you know, my understanding is you don't have to be a fourth to be a fourth. I think as long as you go to the DMV and you say you're a fourth, you're a fourth. So my theory is actually that he's just sort of a, you know, from a, you know, a demographic that is, uh, you know, perhaps something lower than uh, middle class. And uh, you just, either his parents were very uh, unique and um, he embraced that uniqueness. And um, yeah, I, 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 you know, I, I think that would be the weirdest guy just because there were other things about him too. You know, he had tattoos everywhere. I know a lot of people have tattoos everywhere, but he's one of those guys that had like face tattoos. Um, and again, he was, a, he was a nice guy. Like he was, you know, very sincere about everything else. Like he would, we would offer him things and he would say no all the time. So that's why I was kind of surprised, you know, if he was really going to go all out as a con artist, we were gone all day. So, I mean, it wouldn't have been that hard for him to take a few other things, but he didn't take anything else. He just took, you know, the 200 bucks, maybe it was 170 bucks or whatever, left the letter and that was it. Never heard of him again. And uh, we never had backpackers after that. So he looks like a SoundCloud rapper who does a lot of Xanax. He's a white guy, I assume? White guy, yeah. White guy, yeah. I mean, you don't get a lot of fourths that aren't white, I think. Maybe. I could be wrong. Um, so he's got Maybe. a lot of face tattoos. Yeah. He's a fourth. And I think you're looking at him and you're like, okay, this guy looks dodgy. But he's a fourth. We could trust him. <laughs> we can trust him with everything. I, I went to college with a yeah. guy who was a third. And he was mm-hmm. from a very rich family, as you would expect. He dropped out of college, mm-hmm. bought an apartment in the French Quarter in New Orleans. Real nice spot. I went down there one time. I don't know what he's... Mm-hmm. I think he's making art or something now. But, you know, that's what mm-hmm. a third can do. They can go buy a nice little spot in the French Quarter and just do art for the rest of their life, maybe. Sorry, man. And, well, and the, qu- the question is, did, did you name your son um, Nathan Baker the second? No. <laughs> you, you, you missed the chance now, man. You missed the yeah. chance to see a third. Yeah. You're right. I did. But no, I gave him a very unique name. I'm not going to dox my son on the air. But if you know mm-hmm. me, you probably know my son's name. Send me an email. Expats yeah. on air at gmail.com. Yeah, yeah. Anyways. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's little, Brian Terry Bear. A little bit of sake yes. tonight, you know. <laughs> We're keeping it super casual. I thought, okay, I got an old yeah. high school classmate from Japan, mm. half Japanese, half American. Half Japanese, half white. He's a Hoppa. We haven't had a Hoppa on the show yet. I'm glad we do now. Oh, am I the first? You're nice. the first Hoppa, yeah. Yes. <laughs> We've had mostly mostly men on the show. We've had one lady. 
Mm. We'll get more. Don't mm. worry. I'm not discriminating. Just women, reach out, please. I just want to. I'm not trying to be creepy. <laughs> I'm just trying to say, hey, come on the show, talk about your experience. But anyways, Nick, I'm digressing. Now you talked about the weirdest expat, the fourth. How about the weirdest experience mm. you've had, other than you know this uh, getting robbed by a like a like a backpacker <laughs> with face tattoos? Well, you know, um, in Honduras, um, there are two, I would say. And, and one was, um, and I think I need to sort of sort of preface it with a little bit of background, uh, which I actually previously mentioned how prior to going to Honduras, it was literally three months before I you know, landed there. That's when it surpassed Mogadishu as the most dangerous city in the world. And there's just article after article after article about, you know, the narco wars and, you know, I think Breaking Bad was pretty big still back then. And like, I'm free, I'm emailing my principal like once every two weeks saying, are you sure? I can go, are you sure? And I, okay. And so I end up there. And then sure enough, like my first week there, you know, I, I'm walking out of my apartment and then I hear, pop, 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 pop. it's so loud. Like in my heart, like, you know, your heart raises and it goes down but it was a level I've never felt before of adrenaline. Like, and I've been pretty high adrenaline before, like a hundred meter track race, right? Right before that bang sound, you are pumped. But it was like, multiply that by 10. So I just jump behind a car and I, I am like, you know, like hiding down. And then I look up, you know, from the tire. And then I notice it's the kids across the street playing with fireworks, like really, really loud fireworks. So that's when I realized that maybe things weren't as bad but then in the same week uh there was a shooting at the mall about three minutes from my house so um (laughs) i don't know if that's the weirdest story but i i think at least from my personal experience it sounds stupid but for about you know seven eight seconds i was convinced that like this was it like like this is your time man like like something's gonna happen like you might get shot in the leg whatever so that was definitely uh something yeah, I wanted to laugh when you're like, and then there was a shooting the next week or the same week. <laughs> but that's pretty dark. And you, you really yeah. kind of brought that moment into life there. You were like ducking behind your mic. We had like the 3D sound of you ducking behind the car. Dude, that's <laughs> that's scary as hell though. So, I mean, starting as an international school teacher, you had to kind of earn your keep. And you went to one of these countries that exactly. was very dangerous. More dangerous than Somalia at the time, according to... <laughs> experts so is that something you would recommend like if you're trying to get started in this business of international schools you want to be a teacher should you go to world war three and teach (laughs) yeah that's, that's a great question man because it's all relative to age and i tell my wife this all the time you know because i'm 34 now uh, you know, which is relatively junior, because uh, my industry is, you know, quite old. It's not like the tech industry that's quite young. Um, but even now, like, um, you know, as I look, you know, to my next occupation, which which will be in a few years from now, it's like a lot of places have been crossed off the map, you know, because of things like security, safety, you know, and uh, in that sense, so going back to what you were saying, because you do need to earn your keep early on, I think if you're in your 20s, I would just say go for it because there's a lot of things I do cherish. You know, in Honduras, for example, almost all the faculty were in their 20s. So it was almost like an episode of like, uh, 
you know, um, I was going to say Merlot's place, but that's the one where everyone has romantic relationships, which actually people did have romantic relationships. It wasn't, but it wasn't quite like that dramatic. Like it was just like a fraternity, basically. It was like fraternity and sororities. Like it was just like everyone was in their 20s. We'd all go out with each other and like, uh, like for party, not, not dating. And um, yeah, so like those experiences I, I cherish uh, uh, to this day. Um, but with that said, you know, um, I don't think it is a necessity. So for example, my current occupation, I do have a, a colleague um, who I, I, I spend a lot of time with him because we, we also run together. And this is his um, second international post. Um, but his first international post was in Seoul and now here. And he came with kids. So I, I think, you know, he made the right choice. You know, I think with kids, as you would know, being a father yourself, it's just, it's very hard to bring a child to a place that, you know, is the murder capital of the world. Whereas in my case, it was just, yeah. Me. So I was kind of like, if something happens, it happens. And um, Damn. yeah, I mean, I want to say about half of the faculty were robbed uh, during my two years there. It sounds like and, there uh, should have been a lot more gunpoint. romance. You know, every week you're fearing for your life. You want to hold somebody tight at night, make you feel safe, make you feel warm. But there wasn't. Um, are you sure? Are you just are you just not sharing? Are you, are you trying to hold back? Uh, no, actually, I mean, I, I, what I could say is, you know, if you compare it to a school, it's like ASIJ, you know, where we were. Teachers weren't dating each other, if you know what I mean. Whereas, like, where I oh. was, it wasn't uncommon. Wait, oh, okay, wait, wait. They, they were. Was there, that there a dig? Some. Because I've seen some, okay, I don't want to give ASAJ a bad name. I'm not going to say it, but I've seen some mm. funny stuff, funny stuff go on there when I was in school. It seemed like, oh, that's weird. And then you grow up and you're mm. like, well, that was kind of messed up, but I don't want to give them a bad name. There was one, it was one employee who nobody respected mm. anyway. I won't get into mm. it. Maybe you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, it's off-air stuff, off-air stuff. But yeah, <laughs> I would say compared to, you know, these schools where the average teacher is 40, um, obviously there definitely was, um, there were things going on that probably wouldn't, uh, but again, in hindsight, and of course, hindsight's twenty twenty, right. Um, I, you know, I appreciate those years. It definitely has made me a better teacher having taught three years in, in Bahrain. And that's actually another place. It's not as much of a story, but you know, the Arab spring, um, just happened to coincide with my tenure there. So, you know, just, I, I had students, uh, who went to jail you know, who were at the protest and they were Shiites. And um, for those who aren't familiar, Bahrain was one of those countries where I believe it's 20% Sunni, 80% Shia, yet it was controlled by the 20% minority. Uh, and that was a lot of that is ingrained, uh, you know, based on British colonial history. And yeah, I, I had students that just disappeared. They, they never came back. I mean, I was only there for a year, but you know, um, it's like so-and-so has gone. And See I the only world. heard a few weeks later. You're living history. You, so you got to experience the narco wars, the Arab Spring. <laughs> so you've seen a lot. Korea, though, you're seeing a lot of... Well, Jeju looks like a beautiful mm -hmm. place. And what I know about it is a lot of Chinese tourists would go there. It was very easy for Chinese folks to travel over there, you know, without visas or what, what have you. Were, were there special rules for them? Can you talk a little bit about that, like the tourism industry in Jeju? Yeah, so that's right. Actually, the semi-autonomous status uh, really sort of helped the tourist industry here. And uh, normally, my understanding is for Chinese nationals, it's pretty hard to go anywhere really outside of China. Uh, but with Jeju, yeah, it was just a, a zero visa deal. You know, one flight, uh, good five, six major Chinese cities are two, three hours away. 
So um, huge industry. Obviously, this is all pre-COVID. I know COVID's changed everything, but you know, for example, just 15 minutes from my house here, there's this beautiful large casino. You know, that looks like something you would find in, you know, a place that is a bit more metropolitan. Um, but uh, that was uh, built uh, based upon Chinese investors. Chinese casino in Jeju Island. Is it very sleazy or is it classy? Oh, it's, it's classy. It's beautiful. Um, I've only been there once. Um, but yeah, I feel like it's sort of an embodiment of sort of the Chinese investment on this island, right? Because um, if you're a Korean national, you can't even go to the casino. So um, I'm pretty sure. Wait, and again, wait, 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 why, why, why can't you go? Uh, you can't gamble if you're Korean. So um, all the, you know, patrons are just uh, foreign nationals, mostly Chinese. Um, some uh, teachers from the area, right? If you bring your passport and, you know, you're a UK citizen, American citizen, you can go. And um, I think that has definitely been um, right now, or not right now, I think they just finished building. Uh, again, Jeju is not a huge island, right? We have about a million people, maybe 400,000 up in our, you know, capital. And they built like a 50 floor building, like Chinese investors. So, um, you know, it's a love hate relationship, like any, any place that's a tourist destination where on one hand, people like the dollars, right? Or I guess in that case, it would be the, um, what's the currency in China? Um, Renminbi. Yeah, the RB, you know. RMB, um, yeah. yeah. RMB, RMB. Chinese uh, yuan. Uh, money. There's multiple names for it, so it's confusing. Yeah, so pe people are welcoming of that. But on the other hand, you know, it's sort of the gentrification and um, and not only from Chinese investors, but, you know, it's an island where there's a lot of people from Seoul and the mainland, you know, have their second house here. So my understanding is that it's sort of been always sort of this juxtaposition of we can gain, you know, a lot from having tourists, you can sell more things. And then on the other hand, well, you know, property values are going up and if you happen to not own a house here um you know you're probably not gonna be able to buy a house in some of these cities on a fisherman's salary damn have you bought a any property or anything like that overseas um no i've uh i've actually i've never bought uh, any any properties um i do have a friend who, who's purchased a house here and um i'm not sure how much you've talked about this on your um podcast i've, I've only seen um the first one uh, and a little bit of, of, of the last one, but um, that's a whole interesting topic too, right? How some countries you can't even buy anything, right? I think if you're like uh, Thailand, I think you need to be, uh, maybe they changed it, but I remember it used to be you needed to have a, uh, you know, permanent residency or like a Thai national wife. Oh yeah, I've known some some suckers in China who had Thai wives and they were funding the houses to, that they were that they were buying you know, that they thought that would be their house and then the wife mm -hmm. takes it with her family and kicks the foreigner out. And he, and he was a, oh, but wow. this guy was a, this guy was born a sucker though. This guy, mm -hmm. I tell you what, this guy had it coming. He wasn't very bright, but yeah, that's something that happens. Be careful. Yeah. Big investments. I think, especially when you're outside of your sort of home nation, it does have sort of the it does definitely cause a bit of anxiety, I believe, and, you know, worry because again, you're, you're playing in a, you're playing ball in a, you know, different stadium, right? It's just yeah, away man. turf. Yeah. This is a Canadian guy, older fella, overweight, not very handsome, not very charming, not very charismatic, not very fun to hang around with just as a friend or a coworker. 
He was kind of, you know, uh, Winnie the Pooh. There's Eeyore, right? The donkey. He was I kind do of like Eeyore. Recall Eeyore, yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> and he was required to have a Skype call with his his wife every night, his Thai wife every night. But she made him live in China. She's like, no, no, no. We're building the house. You need to go work. You're not getting a good job in Thailand. You got to go to China. You know, making five thousand RMB a month. It's not even that much money. And this guy can't go out and party with us because he's got to talk to his wife on Skype. And then later, she just took everything and, you know, he was out on his own. So, wow. Guy. Yeah. That is uh, all too common story, I guess, with, with certain, you know, areas. But, but yeah, in short, yeah, I haven't invested in any property. And um, <laughs> yeah, pro- <laughs> properties, you know. <laughs> I like uh, it. Yeah, I like I went back to that. Yeah, I, I've not bought any property. Yeah, I don't have too much uh, of uh, content to uh, <laughs> to deliver in regards to uh, real estate. Yeah. Fair enough. Hey, so you okay? You're half Japanese, half American, obviously. And I want to do the big announcement for how many Mister Worldwide's you get. So, how many f- countries have you lived in in total? Five. Yes. <laughs> All right. Five so countries. we're yeah. we're gonna do something special. So we counted as. However many foreign countries you lived in, that's how many Mr. Worldwides you get. Worldwides you get. Mm. And if it's more than five, you just get five Mr. Worldwides. You're a special case because you're a Japanese citizen and an American citizen. You're a dual citizen. Yeah. What do you feel like more? You feel more Japanese? You feel more American? Um, That's a good question, man. Um, I know everyone sort of struggles with this question. I mean, I'd have to go with American at this point. Just because I work at my occupation as sort of the American, you know, Nick Harris, right? I, I teach in English and whatnot. So, yeah, I mean, um, obviously, there's certain things about Japan and certain things about me, as you may be familiar, that are very Japanese. Um, but Wait, wait, wait. Uh, like what? Yeah. What about you? It's very Japanese. It's actually quite, um, it's not that uh, interesting, but just stuff like I read, uh, you know, I read in Japanese. I watch TV shows in Japanese. Um, I, uh, yeah, I, I grew up with Japanese TV too. So that was a big difference, you know, while the rest of you guys were watching, I don't know, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Okay, I did watch a little bit of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I didn't watch that. Slayer, but... I, I knew it was, my <laughs> wife watched that. She loved that, but not, that wasn't for me. I liked the movie. Mm-hmm. I didn't like the show. Sarah Michelle Geller, she really? didn't do it for me. Yeah, I don't know. That was our generation, man. But yeah, while people are doing that, I was just watching, you know, your average, bang average. They, they call it variety show. And if you remember that, you know, and uh, yeah, just, for sure. just random shows like that. And mannerisms too, right? There's certain mannerisms I, I have that are very Japanese. Um, I, I, I tend to sort of like bow, you know, a lot. <laughs> so yeah, there, there's elements of Japanese, but definitely American. But I would I would bargain with you. Because I come from two countries, right? And I've lived in three foreign countries. I would go with probably three and a half. I, I would count, you know, Japan as a half. Well, I think you get you get four. You get four Mr. Worldwide. Or four. Straight up. Wait, hold nice. on. We got to do the <laughs> we got to do the jam. I don't make the rules, but we have to celebrate. Four countries, man. Nice. Congratulations. But yeah, we'll count Japan just because <laughs> it's a special situation. Four Mr. Worldwide's. Pretty good. I haven't had five on yet, though. Oh, no, no, I did. Mm. Last episode, one of the guys was a five, but we, dude, he, they, wow. they wouldn't let me get a word in. They just kept talking and talking, so I um, I didn't even have a chance to, to do the big Mr. Worldwide thing. Not that did, people really care that much. Do you say they as in 
like multiple people or yeah yeah the last episode was another japan centric episode you could say excuse me i got i got terrible allergies mm-hmm. right now man uh the cedar in austin so i've been very nasally on the shows my nose is running right now it's terrible but yeah the last episode you should check it out it's uh there's a dude who lives in a little island uh near shikoku it's like a small little island over there inland island and he yeah. has like a self-sustaining community they do like diy electric grids built putting up solar panels with uh diy battery kits and it's it's pretty interesting yeah, Shikoku's. I'm sure you're similar. I never had a chance to travel much in Japan, so there's I, this whole other part that I'm like, no idea. No. I did. I did go down there with my wife a number of years ago, before my son was born. Went to a little island. I forgot the name of it, but it's it's like Bunny Bunny Island. It's like full of Is rabbits. It the one with the it has the uh, what do you call it, the Tori or big orange thing. Well, it's just Not full of one. rabbits. It's just famous for rabbits. <laughs> it's like it's Bunny Island. Let me try yeah. to pull this up. Bunny Island. Pull this up. Yeah. So okay, you're not you you haven't actually traveled around Japan that much. Not that much. No, it's um, and, and this is something I think people would find quite interesting. Is similar to Africa, the travel in Japan is so expensive, right? To go from the east to the west, it's, it's three hundred bucks, and you could basically you could go to South Korea for two hundred bucks. You, know, you can go to Vietnam and Thailand for you know four hundred fifty. So uh, a lot of people are just if you're gonna pay three hundred bucks to go to Osaka, might as well pay four fifty and go to Bangkok. Oh wow! Yeah, a lot of bunnies. Bunny Island. It's it's quite cool. I recommend going there. There's like a nice little hotel. They got like a onsen. They got like a little buffet for breakfast. There's just rabbits everywhere. You can buy rabbit food. Go feed them. It's very cute. Very family friendly. I recommend it. Yeah, it looks really interesting. I think my wife would enjoy that. Although it seems a bit um, intimidating when that many. Oh, you're afraid of a few rabbits? No, 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 no. They're 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 very sweet animals. But uh, yeah, if you go to Hiroshima, you can take a train. Not not too long. It's like maybe one or two hours, and then you get on a little ferry. You're on the island. Spend the weekend there. It's nice. I, yeah, I really envy that you, you've had that opportunity. I mean, I made it to Osaka, but I think people often forget that Japan, we, we put it in this one big category, but it's so different, right? Like being in, just like northern Japan, it's just a different ball game compared to Tokyo. So it's just like, you know, I know people like, who have never been to Japan want to visit and I always struggle to really sort of provide the, you know, adequate advice, right? I mean, what do you say when someone says, Hey, I'm going to Japan for five days. And I just kind of like, I'm like, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of places. Dude, and I, I get some friends who spent some time in Japan, but not in Tokyo, but they visited Tokyo. Dude, a lot of people hate Tokyo. And I loved, you know, mm. we, we lived there. I mean, I loved it because it was being a teenager there was great. Spent five years there. I love going back to visit. But I don't actually want to work there, personally. Mm. I don't want to live in Tokyo and work there unless... I had a very relaxed business of my own or something. Maybe that then maybe that I could live in Tokyo. But dude, it's 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 a lot different from the rest of Japan. How would you de- how would you describe the difference? I think you summarized it pretty well. There's a lot of people who like to go to Tokyo for a short period, but living there is just a whole nother ball game. And I think unless you've been to, you know, 
I've only visited, I've never lived, but I remember when I went to New York and London, those were the two places where I felt like, oh, this is like Tokyo. People are walking fast. Everyone is busy, busy, busy. You know, people are also walking with purpose. If you know what I mean, I remember that that's what shocked me about New York is just everyone had a place they were going to and they were trying to get there as fast as they can. Um, but yeah, I think that's why. And it could be an age thing, right? As we get older, I feel like when you're younger, there's much more of that appeal for even, you know, the more the most sort of heinous and uh, dilapidated and uh, nefarious institutions like uh, gas panic may be appealing to, uh, you know, a 17 year old. But um, when you're older, yeah, it just kind of like you want a little bit of nature, especially maybe when you have a family, you want parks. And, you know, Japan, Tokyo does have that element, but it's difficult, right? There, there's not as many parks as other places. And, you know, just, um, yeah, I mean, you have a they got some big parks, but you're living in this dense city. You're living in a little shoebox apartment like that. You're paying how much for every month. It's just, it's just a lot every day. It's just not relaxing. You know, I just feel like it's not going to be a quality life like I would want in my I get, I'm not old. I'm in my 30s. But I'm liking being in America, man, the fresh air, because China, there's a lot more space in Japan, I would say, but it's it's a lot dirtier. Mm. There's, the air is not clean. Same thing if mm. you're in Shanghai, there's not a lot of nature. You try to go to the park. If the pollution's too high, I don't take my scent to the park. So it's like, I got to get out of here. You know, I had to get some fresh yeah. air, some space. That's an excellent point, too, about, and it goes back to what I was saying earlier about going to Honduras or not. So much of, I think, being an expatriate is uh, contingent on your family situation, right? And it goes the same with even if it's just you, no kids, you and a, a wife who is uh, not working. There's certain areas that are very conducive to, uh, I guess, what is known as, you know, a trailing spouse, right? Where they can create a community and they can do things. And there's other areas where it's like, you know, get me shout out. out shout out my mom. What's your, what? <laughs> no, you're talking about the trailing spouse, like whether they have communities. That's like my mom, because my dad was an expat, you know. Yeah, my mom wasn't working. Exactly. She was very busy, I mean, though. She had a lot of activities. Well, what did your mom do? You know, was she partake and that kind of stuff? Yeah, yeah. But she, I mean, in Japan, she did a lot of things like ikebana, like flower arrangement. Mm -hmm. She did a lot of cultural activities, you know. She had a, she had a great time. And, she, you know, she, mm -hmm. yeah, there was school you know, if there were sports, she'd be involved in that kind of stuff. But she was yeah. definitely that expat wife, you know. You could have a reality show about those ladies. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, Tokyo, my understanding is it's a mixed bag, right? I've, I've heard, you know, from some mothers that it's very easy, right? Because it's a big city. If you want to, you know, get American food, it's not too hard. Now there's a Costco or two, right? Um, but at the same time, there is sort of that, again, that, odd position where the bigger the city sometimes the lonelier you can get right because it's like there's only so many people you know in that city of i don't know 15 million people now and uh for i think for some americans that that's a tough tough shift to make ride that ride those trains right ride the chuo line all the way from shinjuku to misasakai it's not easy if you're used to driving yes and, and you're explaining the route from downtown tokyo to the school we went to american school in japan which is way out in the suburbs it's out in chofu chofushi it's a little district outside of tokyo so you got you got to take the chuo line 
Shinjuku up to Musashi. What uh, which one? Sakai. Which Musashi? Yeah, Musashi Mus- Sakai. Musashi Sakai, dude. Yeah, I was. You can tell I'm a, I'm a bus person. You can tell. <laughs> I don't remember the train station. Yeah, you, you got to get on another bus, train. I mean, you got to get on another <laughs> train after that, and then you got to walk like ten minutes yeah. after that. So it's it's a journey if you're living in downtown Tokyo and you're if you're going to the school or if you're working at the school. And, and it's what you're used to, right? And and that goes back to sort of the whole concept of your you know podcast here with expat, where my wife, for example, is you know Michigan born and bred, so you know you drive places, right? You don't that's just the thing you know you don't you don't walk 10 minutes you don't walk 20 minutes and so uh initially when she visited tokyo a few times i know that was uh, a bit of a culture shock you know to okay we're gonna see a friend for dinner okay and it's like walk eight minutes to the station get on the train (laughs) you know i get on the train for 10 minutes change trains get on the train for another 15 minutes walk another five minutes get to restaurant go Hey, you know, Johnny, whatever, made up person, but you know what I mean? Whereas the States, it's like, oh, I got a dinner plans. Get in the car, <laughs> 15 minutes, park, boom, you're there. So that difference, uh, it's, it's so small things, right? I, I think that really can add up. For sure, for sure. Hey, so we're about an hour and 25 minutes. Are you, do you have any place to be or do you want to wrap it up soon or can you keep going? Not keep going, yeah. Cool, no cool, uh, yeah. So I wanted to ask, you know, you're in Jeju now, you're in your 30s. Is there any kind of dream destination that you want to work at? Yeah, so um, I think you bring up a great point of this so-called dream schools, or they used to be called lifer schools, but that term I think has sort of become obsolete because um, even at these sort of highly coveted schools, teachers are no longer staying there for their full tenure. And the reasons behind that, I'm not entirely sure. I think part of it is adventure. I think like, uh, I mean, a good example, I know we keep going back to this, but it's sort of a nice base point is American school in Japan, I think is fairly uncontroversially the the best school in, in Japan. And um, uh, at least, you know, the college acceptances as well as teacher salaries would indicate that. But then you might wonder why do people leave? And I think part of it is, you know, again, I think people, it sounds corny, but you know, you only live once. Right. So no matter how much you like it there, once you're there for 15 years, I think a lot of teachers, at least their sort of mentality is, well, what what can I do? You know, what else can I do? You know, I've been doing the same thing for 15 years. And of course, there's people that stay and that's fine, too. You know, sometimes you don't want to rock the boat. Uh, But going back to the question of the dream school, I feel like that has very much shifted in my mind because. um, I think, again, fairly uncontroversially, a lot of the the sort of the quote unquote best schools in most of the cities are the ones with the most simple names, right? Um, Shanghai, it's usually Shanghai American Concordia. Um, Vietnam, actually Vietnam has a school called Eunice, United Nations International School, or, you know, South Saigon. Um, Hong Kong, Hong Kong International School. Very, or Hong, yeah, Hong Kong International School, HKS. It's quite straightforward. But what's been interesting to me is I've seen a lot of people make it to these schools and, um, I think sort of an app metaphor, and I apologize for anyone who's listening who maybe doesn't watch sports, it, you could very much sort of um, uh, compare it to sports teams, right? Uh, and I think I could make sort of apt comparisons for even non-sports fans. So for example, you know, with baseball teams, the New York Yankees is, you know, I think if you play for the Yankees, you've made it, 
right? Regardless of whether or not they had a good season or not. But if we really break it down, there's some players that get to the Yankees and they don't play well, right? There's some players that played really well in their previous team and they get to the Yankees and they play worse. So I think in a very similar sense, one thing that has sort of changed my mind a bit was I've always sort of had this rose colored glasses, especially actually of our alma mater, ASIJ, which, you know, I, I should sort of add a caveat that I do think it's a great school, but um, I think those rose colored glasses are beginning to sort of become more transparent as I get older. And I begin to sort of realize that, you know, I guess another comparison would be if you're a soccer player, if you go to Real Madrid, you might not, it might not be the best thing for you, right? You could go to Real Madrid and it could be the, you know, the worst move you made in your career. So I know it's a sort of a very wishy-washy answer, but yeah, my sort of wishy-washy answer is that I think um, there is those list of schools uh, and you can ask any teacher at any school and they'll be like, okay, Seoul, Seoul International School, um, maybe Seoul Foreign School to a certain degree. And there's all these schools out there, but when it comes to sort of quality of life, you know, uh, independence of uh, curriculum, um, how you just fit into that school, right? Some, some teachers just fit in like a glove, you know, um, and, and a lot of it's chance. Maybe you're a huge um, uh, basketball person and you, you arrive at a school and there just happens to be like a head or assistant basketball position and you just mesh right in and it works perfectly. And you could go to another school and, you know, basketball is maybe your big thing, I, apart from teaching, obviously, no one, it's not like the States where you have peer coaches like American football, but, you know, maybe basketball is a huge thing, but you get to a new school and there's a coach already there who's been coaching 20 years and an assistant coach that's been there 15 years and, and neither of them ha- are no sign of retiring. So in that case, you know, are you going to be happy? So I don't that that's sort of my long answer that I, I think there are these schools that everyone considers a dream. And I think, uh, I think they're mostly great schools. I don't think, um, uh, their dream, uh, their you know, so-called tier one schools uh, for a reason. Um, but with that said, at an individual point, you know, going back to my example, the Yankees or Real Madrid, I uh, definitely my perception has changed a bit in regards to where is my dream school. And I mean, if you were to ask me now, I think my dream school is where I am right now. You know, I I'm happy. You know, I I've got a great boss, great vice principal. Uh, I love the kids here. Um, they let me coach soccer. I can do MUN. So like, um, yeah, I think the dream school definitely depends on um, that individual base. With that said, though, there's definitely a certain minimum, right? Salary you want, a certain minimum housing you want. And fortunately, where I am, it, that, you know, it checks, it checks out. Um, I wouldn't be happy if I had everything I had right now. And, you know, for example, if I was getting paid half, um, no, um, I wouldn't be happy. Well, you said some nice things about your employer. I hope they're listening. Might be a nice little raise. Well, just, just in case. Yeah. <laughs> but I thought but you, I mean, you said, I, I do mean it too, though. Yeah. 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 I mean, it sounded very <laughs> genuine. And you, I thought that was cool. Uh, you said it was wishy washy. I think that was a very grounded answer. That's a very, like, realistic answer for the human experience. You know, we don't live in a fairy tale. Mm-hmm. You're not going to find this special place that's going to be perfect but you got to look back you got to take a step back look at what you have are you happy are you not happy you're happy so that sounds Mm. cool now korea though what's what do you think what are like some of the big differences between korea and japan obviously they're in east asia 
a lot of people who are not in East Asia might think they're similar, but maybe you don't think so. What do you think is I'm, some of the standout differences? With, um, I actually want to start with that, with answering what has uh, been incredibly similar. Um, and it, it surprised me, you know. Um, so just to sort of name some off the top of my head is uh, one would be sort of uh, what is called a hagwon here. In Japan, we call it juku. And the uh, Korean uh, college exam test. So in Korea, exactly like Japan, there is a test seniors take senior year. And that one test dictates which university they get into. And now what makes this very, very intense is in countries like Korea and Japan, your college name can basically decide everything. Right? Like your future employment is very much hinging on it. So you basically have these just incredibly stressed out high school seniors who are waiting for this one test. And part of that connects to what I was saying earlier, the Hagwan and Juku in Japan, where um, I remember I had a friend who uh, we were both mailboys at this law firm my junior year. Um, I call it an internship, but really I was a mailboy. And um, he was at uh, Keio University, which you may be familiar with. You know, it's, it's often considered the best or second best after Tokyo University. And I remember asking him, you know, so how did you get into Keio? And he said, well, during the day, he said he would go to school and um, he would take a nap during class. He said school was a place where I got sleep. He said he tried to get two, three hours of sleep at school. And then school would end. And then his real studying would start at 4 p.m. where he would go to an intense after school lesson where like I think it was something like 4 p.m. to like 10 p.m. And because his regular school was public school, that cost nothing. But his juku was very, very expensive. You know, we're talking like 40, 40, 50 bucks an hour. So that model is exactly the same here. And in that sense, sort of going back to international schools, I think, you know, one of the reasons uh, of, of the many of why Koreans and Japanese like to, you know, go to international schools is to sort of get out of, you know, what J Japanese would call Juken Senso, where you have this ridiculous situation where you have 17, 18 year olds studying 40 hours a week on non-school material for this one test, which will, you know, dictate the rest of their life. So that was, you know, similarity I saw. Culturally, of course, I see the sort of the what in Japan would be the senpai and kohai, right? The younger and the older. That is very much prevalent here. I would say even more so than in Japan. And my theory behind that is the military culture. It's mandatory military service here. So everyone has served in the military. Uh, and it's usually between about ages 18 to, I think 29 is the oldest, but most people serve between 18 to about 25. So that's why... Your attitude, especially when you're a 14 year old boy or 17, 18 year old boy towards someone who's 30 or 40 is sort of there's an extra bit of um, reverence because you know that they've put 18 months of their lives towards serving their country and serving in the military. Whereas you as a kid being 14 or 19 or you know, 21, whatever, have not done that yet. So uh, that's you a similarity I've seen. Can you explain that a bit? Drinking. Like, what, is, what is senpai and kohai, though? <laughs> uh, just like elder and younger. So, you know, I, I think Japanese care more about age and seniority than Americans do. And um, I find myself, especially sort of being a halfy in between all of this, you know, where there are moments where I do feel like Westerners maybe almost lack a respect towards elders. 
but there's also times where I'm like in Japan, it's just like, dude, this guy just lived like two years longer than you, you know, like, like that's not a qualification to, yeah, to garner respect. Okay. Boomer. Okay. Boomer. There's like a whole pastime of making fun of old people in America. Even the old people make fun of old people. It's, that's true. That's true. And I mean, like, you know, I, I think, you know, it's all about, you know, towing a fine line of balance, right? Because I have spoken to some of my Silicon Valley friends, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, but the average age in Facebook, for example, is 29, man. So you and I would be old boys if we joined Facebook tomorrow. Yeah. And that's the beauty of Facebook. It's, it's like, a, like a big nursing home. <laughs> Everybody gets a free meal. No, no. Uh, Facebook, I got my gripes with Facebook because I work in advertising. Advertising. So mm. my experience on Facebook is work. Facebook is work to me. Twitter, mm. I enjoy Twitter a lot more than Facebook just for the content, just because that's where things are actually happening. Things that are happening on Twitter, they make it to Facebook in three days. You know, That's usually mm -hmm. how it goes. And I don't know, but my whole work is involved with social media, so it all feels like work to me. But anyways, mm. being old and creepy. Do you feel creepy sometimes as like an older guy? And you're like, what am I doing here? People, people are looking I, at me like I'm some creepy old man. Do you have that stigma? Or are you like, no, what are you talking about, Nate? I, I, have, I have a very normal life. I don't feel creepy at all. Um, I, you know, I think age is, is very relative, right? It, it depends really on um, the presence of who you are, you're in. Because there's moments, I'm sure you're similar, where... I feel like a baby, you know, and I sometimes don't like it though when I'm babied because I feel like I'm an adult because I am an adult because <laughs> I'm 34. But when I say that, I mean like, you know, when I'm in the presence of my father and his friends, um, oh, this is an interesting episode would be like, um, I remember uh, Julio Iglesias, uh, you know, the singer uh, was in Bahrain uh, back when I was there in, in 2011. And um, I explained it, and I probably shouldn't have done this to my father and his friends who are about, you know, all 35 years, uh, 30 years older than me, most of them. And I was like, yeah, Enrique Iglesias' dad came to Bahrain and they, they gave me a bunch of crap for that. They're like, what do you mean Enrique Iglesias' dad? You know, he is Julio's son. You know, don't disrespect Julio Iglesias. And <laughs> Wait, so I just feel like, yeah, it, who, it depends who is, on who you're talking to. Who is the dad? What's he famous for? Oh, see, dude, you're you're a millennial, man. You're you're a baby. Um, Julio Iglesias is Enrique Iglesias' dad, but he was sort of the the prominent singer until Enrique, you know, really rose in fame. Actually, during our formative years, well, I want to say we were probably Enrique about teenagers had like when he was. one hit. He had Bala. Oh, I would strongly contest that. You know, I mean, you do have Google open. But, well, no, no, but he he had another song with Pitbull like ten years later, though, didn't he? Oh, it goes. Would you? He's dance had like, he's had I two hits. Dance? Would you run? You don't remember with, uh, the Jennifer Love Hewitt? I mean, that, that was like our no. youth, man. That was Jennifer like, Lopez was, like, or Jennifer 20, Love Hewitt? Probably. I love Hewitt. Love Hewitt. Yeah. Really? Oh damn! A super famous song, the hero. I'll be your hero, baby. I didn't know oh, Jennifer Love no, Hewitt was involved in that. I thought she was just in movies like Can't Hardly Wait, 90s classics. No, he, he, I know what you did last <laughs> summer. That would be our youth, yes. Um, I know what you did last summer. Um, Scream. Um, lots of horror movies back then. Like, decent ones. I feel like they were very trashy in the 80s. And 
now they're very classy. I'm yeah, they got of, yeah. A lot of the artistic, you know, film crafters are getting involved in the horror now. So there's a lot of good content out. A lot of shit though. Exactly. You ever get on Amazon? Oh yeah, I mean Netflix and you like apps. Yeah. What are these movies? There's so many movies <laughs> that I've never heard of, and they and they have like a 4.8 on IMDb. It seems like it's easier to make movies now, but. But yeah, I remember when we were younger, it was like it was like something bad. It's like you didn't want to share it with people if you watched a horror movie. You know, it's like you had to keep it a secret. It was like now it's oh, like, I, I never had that problem. You know, well, why why'd you keep it a secret? You're like ashamed because you watched yeah, bad I felt movies? like especially like in college, I, I just felt like I was so low brow. You know, I felt like it was telling someone I just watched Freddy Got Fingered or something like that. You know, it's like which is actually an underrated movie, but you know, it just <laughs> felt like a low brow. You know, very sort of you know, low hanging fruit in regards to sort of artistic, you know, like, I guess one could call theater. Yeah, there, there were a lot of things when I was younger where I was embarrassed to talk about. It. Oh, God, even if I was like attracted to a girl in high school and like my friends never said that they shot she was hot, then I would be like a little nervous and be like, oh, I think she's hot. And they'd be like, what are you? What are you gay? Or something. They probably say something <laughs> like that. Something really. Uh, they didn't even have mean it homophobically. They just said it. You know. Yeah. No. I, I, that's been a theme actually in some of my my podcasts that we were sort of like the good and bad generation because we were spearheading sort of a lot of you know progressive values. I think we were sort of the first generation that were like, okay, what's wrong with gay marriage? You know. But we were also at the tail end of sort of this nastiness of the '90s. Where like we were saying certain slurs, um, not necessarily all homophobic, other slurs too, and, and there just wasn't very much, uh, you know, I guess thought put to it. Yeah, uh, kids growing up these days. Well, my son, I mean, he he had an iPad when he was like two, you know, so he's very savvy with the iPad, and it actually worked out with this remote schooling stuff. A lot of the kids, you know, their parents probably have this lofty idea. No screen time for my child. They're going to have a screen much later in life. And now where remote school starts, these kids don't know how to use an iPad. Give me a break. My kid is a master yeah. of an iPad. Sure, he hates spelling. He hates it. Mm. But he can use an iPad like a, re- like a rock star. You know, so mm. it kind of worked out in the end. Yeah. And, and I mean, honestly, the skill sets, right, as we get older, he would go generation alpha. I mean, how much does spelling really matter, right? I mean, obviously, you'd want someone to be able to spell cat or something. But, you know, when it comes to complicated words, I feel like autocorrect has truly uh, damaged my ability in spelling because I will just purposely spell something incorrect now knowing it's going to get corrected. And, yeah. Well, that yeah, can be you know, your detriment because you're like, it's almost right. And you're on your little iPhone and you're typing and you're like, why doesn't it give me the word? Why is the word that I want coming up? And then you got to rewrite it. And then you rewrite it wrong again and it still doesn't come up. Yeah, it's, it's a nightmare. And then you're trying to say the F word and it says duck. Yeah, it's always duck. <laughs> they've, never, they've never adjusted that, actually. I realize there's not a mode for that, is there? You have to manually click on the top. these iPhone guys do it on purpose. And you know what? I bought my – I got an iPhone XR – purchased in shanghai you know what i can't see Mm. on my phone that i will never be able to see in my phone guess that is it because you purchased it in china yep just because i purchased it in china guess what i can never see on my Mm. phone wow we're talking about Mm. the lofty 
Moral apple. Moral superiority apple. I can't see the Taiwan flag on my phone. It comes up as a box with an X in it. Every time, even Every on time. a U.S. The emoji, circuit. the emoji character is not available. Oh, the emoji on mainland yeah, China yeah. iPhones. Isn't that petty? Wow! Can you believe that? Yeah, that's it's it's petty, but I'm not surprised. Yeah. It's yeah. Um, so I mean, it's a good phone. I don't really yeah, want to get a new I mean, phone anytime soon. I'm, I'm, I don't think I need to use the Taiwan flag that much personally. I'm not like always. Oh, Taiwan! Oh, I'm not doing that, but. Um, I do like Taiwan, though. The occasional Taiwan tweet I want to send. I want to throw an emoji in there. Mm. Yeah, it's definitely an, an, it's an interesting country. Actually, I visited there last year. and uh, Or was it two years ago? That was two years ago now. And, no, it was last year. No, two years ago. I forget. It's 2021. Yeah, fabulous food, fabulous people. Their 7-Eleven game, and we didn't talk about this. And I would, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a pretty bold statement and say that when it comes to the convenience store food, um, no one is close to Japan. I would say Taiwan was a You're distant second. Absolutely yeah. correct in that statement. There's nothing like a Japanese <laughs> convenience store. You can get close. You go to Family Mart in Shanghai. Ah, it's almost there. Not quite though. You're not. You're not getting a pizza man. You're not getting a pizza man mm. in a Shanghai Family Mart. Can you explain <laughs> what a pizza man is yeah. while I pull it up on the screen? Yeah, it's um, actually I don't I, I can't really eloquently say what it is. I mean, uh, I, I don't know what Americans call the, uh, you know, that pastry with, with steamed with bun. Stuff inside I of guess. It. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, it's a steamed bun, steamed bun with literally like pizza flavor inside, and you know you can get pork flavor, you can get cheese flavor, curry flavor, and all tastes brilliant. And it's only like a buck, and surprisingly, because of the, I wouldn't quite call it deflation, but the lack of inflation the last. 20 years the prices are quite similar today you can still go to a japanese convenience store and get one of those buns for about a buck yeah they they taste better than you know what would cost 4.99 in new york city or something at some you know small restaurant yeah and they're so in china these are called baozi so they used to okay the 7-elevens in shanghai used to have these they discontinued them for some reason who knows but Mm -hmm. there's there was a startup in china called baozi it's like a combination of the word bautza mm. and pizza. So they started doing it there. And um, where was I going with this? I, I drank too much sake, Nick. Some about, totally. about bautza. <laughs> oh, yeah. In Austin. Okay. In Austin, there's a bautza place now. So you can get like, oh, wow. they don't do the pizza ones, but they do They do one better, yeah. man. Brisket. Beef brisket. Texas really? style. Texas barbecue this style. This is the thing, though. Do they charge more than a buck ninety nine? Yeah, <laughs> it's America, man. What do you expect? But it's great. It's called it's called bowed up. Oh, but it's fantastic. Brisket. They got a buffalo chicken one. It's so good. Yeah, I guess. I, and now that we're older, we have money, right? That's one thing I always appreciate about Tokyo was was uh, we didn't need much money, and you know, um, sort of just going back to a little bit of international school stuff. Um, I think that's what a lot of parents appreciated too. Uh, because, you know, I, I've worked at a variety of schools, variety of areas, and there are places where, um, I guess, lack of a better word, um, you get kids who flex. You know, I remember when I was in the Middle East, there were kids with literally $100,000 cars. And I remember one kid especially was very um, not the most um, gentleman 
Lee guy. And he would always ask him, what kind of car do you drive, Mr. Harrison? It's because he wanted to tell me what kind of car he drove. And right. um, hey, at Ace hey, kid, yeah, I drive a 1994 Taurus. You got a problem with that? Um, I mean, I really actually don't like Ford, so I, I do. I, I drove a Ford Escort in How dare college. You. So. My dad worked for <laughs> Ford in Japan, mind you, when we were in high school together. And, and, and I actually bought a Chrysler, so I got a Chrysler now, so I can't talk. So I actually didn't know about your dad working at Ford, but yeah, I, 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 uh, I hated the car. It had no AC and um, made summers very hard. Okay, for the record, <laughs> Ford is not a perfect company. Most of their cars do have air conditioning. <laughs> True. It might have been more of a me problem than a Ford problem. But yeah, you know, going back to the idea of wealth, um, that's something I feel quite proud about, even at my, my current school where, you know, um, uh, this is all public information, but um, I think our, our tuition is about, you know, 28000 and the, for a high school at least. And then we also have dorms. So dorm students are paying about 40000 a year. So, you know, a pretty penny. Uh, for high school education. But, um, you know, I feel like the students are relatively grounded. You know, um, there's no kids walking around with $5,000 watches. Um, there's, you know, when uh, we used to do this thing called a uh, pastoral care where we would take students out to eat and they would always, and the kids would be like, oh, should I, should I get, you know, should I get this extra, you know, $4 drink? And it kind of really reminded me of ASIJ because we were very similar in ASIJ. I remember, obviously, with a few exceptions, um, you know, most kids, we'd go out and we'd kind of be like, oh, you know, how much is, this, you know, this 500 yen will last us at the arcade or something, you know? And obviously, there's other examples I don't want to get into details of. But you know what I mean? Like, there were just, you know, we were very, and I feel like within that group of friends, as I got older, I was like, oh, you know, this, this kid probably could have gone out with, you know, 300 bucks every weekend. And um, it would not have hurt his, you know, family's financial, you know, um, what do you call it? You know, their, their financial status at all. But it was very purposeful they, they wanted to make sure their high schoolers had a high school appropriate, you know, lifestyle, high school appropriate budget. And, you know, I, I think overall, I would say most international schools, most kids, do a pretty good job. I mean, I mean, w- w- was it similar for you uh, at ASIJ? I know we were only about a year apart, but. Well, I wasn't flexing. I mean, my parents did pretty well for themselves, but the, I, I think I got an allowance, but I was, I worked though. I mean, before I could mm-hmm. be a bus monitor and that was this great thing about ASIJ. If you were a high school student, you could have a job at the school being a monitor on the bus. Cause it's a K through 12 school, mm-hmm. kindergarten through 12th grade. So all the little kids are on the bus. All the big kids are on the bus. What if we get an accident? What if somebody needs to do CPR? Well, they deputized students to do that. And they gave CPR training. And it was great. You know, I learned a skill. I learned something that could save somebody's life. And I got paid for just sitting on the bus and making sure kids didn't act crazy. You know, and th- yeah. that was nice. And I, I did the late bus. That was like after the extracurricular activities. You know, it was all the kids in the bus. I could make like 100 bucks a week. And then I can go party mm. on that budget, you know. So I didn't need my parents' allowance. It was it was great. But you don't – yeah. I mean in a place like Southeast Asia, a lot of the kids there, they have maids. They have drivers. Not really the case mm. in Tokyo where it's a lot more expensive. Yeah, sure, people are pretty well-to-do who send their kids to these schools. But they don't have like a housekeeper and a cook and a driver and an armed bodyguard like a lot of these kids in – Indonesia or Philippines might. 
That, that's very true. Yeah, I, I think it's definitely geographically different. But Japan is sort of one of those extremes, eh? Where I was like, said so there's just there almost was not much, you know, light between a faculty kid and the CEO's kid. And I thought that was just a beautiful thing because, you know, it seems like in the United States because you can drive from age 16, especially in places like a te- you know Texas, you know Kansas, etc. Like those differences are only you know ma- you know magnified because it's very obvious you know if a kid is riding the bicycle to school versus the kid who's got the eighty thousand dollar you know bmw so um yeah th- that's something I-, I find very refreshing and i think it is also just sort of the ethos of people who've made it in the business world right you follow a lot of the writings by guys like buffett or bill gates etc and they all have the same pattern where they seem to not spoil their children. I mean, I think Gates goes a little too far of saying like he's not leaving anything, right? He's not, it's not nothing or almost nothing, right? To his kids. But that seems to be their ethos, you know? Well, he's a weirdo, that guy. But anyways, I'd say at ASIJ, there was one guy who was flexing big though. You probably know who I'm talking yeah. about. He, he's still flexing in a different way now. He's got some big muscles now. Now you probably definitely know what I'm yeah. talking about. Has he been in I your show? I definitely talking about. Yeah. No, no. I've uh, I've reached out a few times. Um, I've not got a response yet. Um, yeah, I don't know. Some some people just don't want to do it, and um, it's understandable. I mean, like I've enjoyed our conversation today, but it's definitely, you know, for me, it wasn't that challenging, right? Because I can talk to you right now, and I've I've done it right uh, our 58 times already. Uh, but I could see how, you know, if one is not used to conversing and then being on. <laughs> I'm pulling them up. I'm are, bringing are we in the okay ASIJ doing this? Yeah. No, Shinji. We, we, okay, Shinji, he's a public figure. He's got a company. And let's promote his business, too. Uh, he's got a great sure. brand called Re-Earth. He, uh, it's very natural, cosmetics for women, premium stuff. This guy knows he's got great taste. And he, he should definitely be on the Tokyo Alumni Podcast. And he should definitely come on Expats on Air. And if he doesn't, I'm hoping, yeah, it's just a cop out, right? Shinji well, we'll is on the record. We'll see which one of us get him first. <laughs> I don't care. So one of us will get him. Shinji's yeah. a very—he's—he's he's like the Doseki guy. He's like the most interesting man in the world. Yeah, he's—he's he's definitely uh, just one of those guys that kind of li- lives a life like like a movie, which which I find very admirable. Yeah. Well, I, I don't want to talk about him too much since he's not on the show. Um. But yeah, I just wanted to do that to motivate him to to get the conversation going. You know, get someone to send him this podcast, right? To hey, you're. I'll make sure he sees it. I'll make sure he sees it. Shit, sorry about that. A little notification. All right, man. We've been on the air for almost two hours. I think we can wrap it up. One thing, though, I want to ask you before we go. Hmm. We talked about dream school and your your whole opinion on that. Now holidays though what's the dream little Mm. holiday for you if you're living in korea you could jump down to southeast asia fairly easily is that where you're trying to go Mm. where's where's your dream holiday let's say if you got like a week off where are you going oh man so this obviously in a post-covid world yeah Um, yeah yeah of course you know this actually sort of touches upon what we've spoken about already about japan there's just so many beautiful places I have not been to yet in Japan. And during these COVID times, I have uh, through Instagram, I have all these friends and, and relatives going to all these places. And it looks like Hawaii. And I was just looking at my cousin Aki's, you know, she's 
been to uh you know she was at this place and i thought it was hawaii and i clicked on it and it was like two hours out of tokyo so um yeah i i would i would really like to just travel around tokyo especially go north i really haven't gone north of ibaraki which is like literally maybe 100 miles north <laughs> so there's that whole chunk of northern honshu uh like akita and aomori uh which which i would love uh, yeah to visit have you been to hokkaido much you know, the last time might have been um, through ASIJ, actually. Eighth grade. Uh, I'm not sure if you went on that trip, too, the Hokkaido. Yeah. Eighth grade that was trip. Last, last time I went skiing, I was 14. Same. Yeah, Japan. last time I went skiing, too. <laughs> Dude, we had a snowball it, it fight. Good memories. We had a snowball yeah. fight. Dude, I want to get ASIJ in trouble. I think the statute of limitations has passed. This is more than 20 years ago. This is 1999, 2000, around that time. I was in eighth grade. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, yeah I'm 2000, 2001. Yeah, so, yeah, it would have been a year later for you. So we got in this big snowball fight in downtown Hokkaido. Students, faculty, it was a free-for-all. It was nuts. It was so much fun. Mm. The teachers started getting a little excited. Maybe there were some problem children that they really wanted to take some anger out on. <laughs> Somebody got hit in the head with an ice ball that night and bled. And uh, oh it was God. the ice ball was thrown by a teacher at a student. Yeah, I'm not blaming that teacher. All spare in yeah. love and war and snowball fights. So I just got to say yeah. before we get off the air, ASIJ, mm. some things that happened were a little weird in the past, but I got nothing but good things to say about you. I, yeah, you know what I do? Similar, similar. I actually read yeah. emails from ASIJ. I don't read emails from my college. Get fucked, college. I do read emails from ASIJ though. That's true. I, I like to keep up. I actually saw, I saw your post uh, recently, so I was very happy. Like it was a great time. It was like like two days before coming on air. Yeah. I was like, hey. Yeah, it's all <laughs> calculated, baby. That's the promotion schedule. So yeah, we'll get this episode out yeah. asap. We'll get it in the ASIJ community. But I think what I really think is a value here for anybody listening is, hey, you've been in the international school circuit for a while. You have a lot of knowledge to share, insight. And I think if anybody's looking to become an international school teacher, whether they're fresh out of college or there's somebody like me, I'm not considering a career change. But if I were, being an international school teacher sounds like a pretty cool thing. And I think I learned a lot in the show, and yeah. it's, it's been great that you could share your experience. Well, thank you. I, I've, I've had a great time talking to you. I can't believe it's already been, yeah, two hours. Wow. Yeah. And, <laughs> um, yeah, as you were saying, if anyone, you know, at all, especially the younger folks, right? Um, you know, who are thinking about teaching or people who are even thinking about changing jobs, you know, as we, um, you know, we have a mutual friend uh, from class of 04. He just, he got into teaching about five years ago and uh, we spoke actually extensively before he left his job and joined teaching. So, you know, if you're sick of your job and you're looking for something new, international teaching is not a, it's not a bad route. And uh, definitely um, I'm available to talk to if you're an ASIJ alum or if you're a friend of Nathan's or whoever <laughs> yeah i'm gonna post this to reddit i'm gonna get downvoted all those reddit haters gonna be like stop promoting your shit in my community bunch of pussies anyways uh let's let's end the show thanks and, and mm. i'm glad you uh you handled my crudeness well i think our shows have a have a different cultural element i like to be very freewheeling Let's record this thing. Let's not edit it. Let's just keep the conversation going. Now, you censored me a little bit on your podcast. You have your reasons. I, I don't censored blame you. you a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and I apologize that I had to censor you so much. Um, but as we discussed, it's uh, yeah. different uh, 
it's more of a different goal, I guess, right? I was going to yeah. say ethos, but it's not even really my ethos. It's just more of the, the purpose of the, the oh, podcast. Yeah. yeah. There's something I totally forgot <laughs> to bring up, and, and we'll wrap it up. But I think your show, I mean, it's great for your students, right? Like, your students are graduating from international school. They're looking at making a career change or a career choice, and they're mm. able to listen to dozens of people who have a similar background and they're able to share their story of how they got where they are today. And I think there's a lot to be learned for, you know, international school students for that matter, checking out the Tokyo alumni podcast. Definitely. Yeah. That's definitely one of the, the points uh, I, I hope to accomplish. And uh, yeah, man, it's, uh, it's great being on air. And um, I guess this goes right away. So you, I guess no, no editing, huh? We just go Bill O'Reilly style. Huh? We just, just Bill O'Reilly style. Yeah, I'll I'll upload it tomorrow. But yeah, I'm not gonna edit it. I'm just gonna put this out. Man, I got a job. Editing, you know, editing is easy for me. I'm a video editor. I can edit like I can edit a TV commercial easy. But rendering, you gotta wait. There's all this processing time. I don't want to deal with that. I just want to put this out live, and eventually we're gonna do it. We're gonna do it live on stream. And we'll get some uh, callers, maybe. Maybe we get like a guy like Andrew Brown to call that in live. Fun, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's a good idea, but it would be fun. Yeah. It'd be fun. <laughs> Anyways, man, um, you don't have to hang up on Zoom yet, but I'm gonna press stop on the record. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Thank you. <laughs>